As a lawyer who's represented some of Bill Hybels' victims, Mitch Little has seen a side of Willow Creek that few others have. Why did so many look the other way for so long? What eventually broke the culture of secrecy and protection? And what lessons can we learn from Willow Creek's mistakes? Welcome to The Roy's Report, a podcast dedicated to reporting the truth and restoring the church. I'm Julie Roy's, and today I'm excited to be speaking with Mitch Little. Mitch is an attorney, a church elder, and an advocate for abuse victims. He represented two women involved in the sex abuse scandal involving Bill Hybels. One of those women is Vonda Dyer. Vonda was at one time the director of Willow Creek's vocal ministry, and she was one of the first women to come forward and speak publicly about Bill Hybels' alleged sexual misconduct. The other woman that Mitch represented will remain confidential, but both these cases enabled Mitch to peek behind the curtain at Willow Creek and view up close some of the dysfunctions that led to that scandal. Yet Mitch isn't just a lawyer who's seen megachurches as an outsider bringing accountability. He's also the chairman of the elder board at his own church, Bent Tree Fellowship. Bentree is a multi-site megachurch in the Dallas-Fort Worth area that's had its own share of crises over the past several years. So Mitch has a very unique perspective, and in the few times I've spoken with him, I found his insights to be profound. So I'm very much looking forward to our time together today. But before we begin, I just want to take a minute to thank the sponsors of this podcast, Judson University and Marquardt of Barrington. If you're looking for a car, I encourage you to visit my friends at Marcourt of Barrington. My husband and I actually bought our last car from Marcourt, and we had a great experience. I know the owners, Dan and Kurt Marcourt, personally, and I can say without reservation that they truly run their business with honesty, integrity, and transparency. To view their entire showroom online, just go to buyacar123.com. That's buyacar123.com. Also, I want to let you know that Judson University is planning to resume in-person classes this fall for traditional, transfer, and adult students, and it's still not too late to apply. You can choose from more than 60 majors and learn in a Christian environment known for its spiritual values, leadership opportunities, and strong financial aid. Judson is located just 36 miles outside Chicago on a beautiful 90-acre campus. For more information, just go to judsonu.edu. That's judsonu.edu. Well, again, joining me today is Mitch Little, a partner with Sheaf and Stone in Frisco, Texas. He's also a strong believer and advocate for abuse victims and someone I'm extremely glad is serving in church leadership. So, Mitch, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Julie, it is great to be with you again. How are you? I'm doing well, but probably not as well as you because you're on vacation in Florida. So (laughs) Um, (laughs) thanks for taking the time. And, you know, anybody who's willing to take a few minutes out of their vacation for a podcast, I just really appreciate it. So thank you. I am thrilled to be here. Thank you so much. It's good to be visiting with you again. So Mitch, um, how is it that a lawyer from Texas ended up representing victims of sexual harassment at a mega church in Chicago. How did that all happen? Great question. I will let you know as soon as I figure it all out. <laughs> I'm good friends with Vonda Dyer, who worked at Willow and was one of the women who bravely came forward with her story about uh, her interactions with Bill Hybels. And I'm good friends with her husband, Scott Dyer, as well. Scott Dyer was the worship pastor at Ventry Bible Fellowship. And I was sitting at my office one day and Vonda picked up the phone and gave me a call and kind of told me what was coming down the pike in terms of Uh, the Chicago Tribune article that basically lit the fuse on that entire situation at Willow. I was kind of thrust into the middle of it out of love for wanting to help my friends. And man, 
that thing escalated pretty quickly. And it turns out there were a lot more women who had been affected by Bill Hybels, many more than even Vonda Dyer knew. Hmm. Well, and that is one aspect of the story that I want to explore together, because I know that what happened at Willow, from my understanding of speaking with Vonda and several victims, is that it was far worse, the abuse there, and far more pervasive than most people know. And that's one of the frustrations I know of a lot of the victims is that Willow hasn't publicly acknowledged that or publicly said how bad it was. So since you've seen a lot of this kind of up close and personal um, through talking to witnesses and elders and staff people, um, how bad was the abuse at Willow Creek? Well, to answer your question, uh, very bad. Hmm. Uh, it, it took a variety of forms. I think uh, one of the ways that Willow tried to reckon with the situation was to permit Bill Hybels to retire from his role at the church. And then everyone could say, oh, how sad that that one person did that one thing. Hmm. Uh, and now let's put that in the past. Uh, Willow did not want to reckon with the deformed culture that had manifested underneath Bill's leadership. I know from hearing from men that that Bill abused men emotionally, spiritually, while they were working there. In fact, I know some of them. Um, this was something that was very deeply ingrained in their culture, just what I'll call a deformed leadership culture at the church, where certain things became acceptable that shouldn't. Hmm. And some of it also involved a culture that was willing to cover for wrongdoing, right? I mean, there were some things that you learned specifically that were done to potentially cover wrongdoing by Bill Hybels, correct? Yes. In the course of representing these women, it, it became obvious that this was not an, what I'll call an echelon or tier leadership problem just at Bill Hybels' level. The cover-up of his behavior manifested at the elder board level. It manifested at the human resources level. It manifested even at the IT level at the church. It's how do we protect the entity and the entity as expressed through the person of Bill Hybels. Once, once you make that decision that you're willing to protect the entity or the person in charge of the entity to the detriment of members of the body or members of the staff, you've made some poor choices that are going to have consequences. Hmm. When you say the IT department, it's my understanding you came into some information about emails getting destroyed. Is that correct? Yes, probably a number of your listeners are aware of the situation where the Ortbergs and Mayados had tried to report to the board uh, an alleged long-term affair that Bill Hybels was engaged in, and uh, the church hired an outside, quote-unquote, outside investigator to investigate the situation. The outside investigation report said something along the lines of, of Bill Hybels' hundreds or thousands of emails with this woman were, quote, not available. Well, as it turns out, my understanding from talking to witnesses, those emails were actually destroyed. Hmm. And destroyed by a staff person. Destroyed by a staff person is my understanding. So when when you have a culture that's willing to, you know, spoliate evidence, destroy documents in order to preserve a narrative, there's really very little that the culture will not accomplish at the cost of innocent people. And this is what's so difficult, I think. Uh, as believers, we should be standing for truth. We should not look the other way. And yet here we see a church that's ostensibly about serving God 
and it's about proclaiming the gospel, and yet this is happening within the church, and so many people are looking the other way. And I I saw this at Harvest Bible Chapel when I was doing reporting there. What is it uh, that causes so many people who know better to look the other way and allow evil to prosper? As I was working through the Willow Creek representation with these women, the thing that kept cropping up to me was the Milgram experiment. Uh, Maybe some of your listeners are familiar with that. You can go on YouTube and and see what that's all about. It's M-I-L-G-R-A-M, the Milgram experiment. But basically, American researchers were trying to figure out after World War II why so many in uh, German society were willing to go along with the Nazis or go along with their leadership, do incalculably horrible things to people. In this Milgram experiment, they found that people are willing to do things under color of authority and uh, that they would not probably otherwise do. So when you have someone who is trusted, who's supposed to be an expert, you know, like a pastor, like a longtime senior pastor who's supposed to be a theological expert, and someone who's an authority, like a senior pastor, people are willing to do things to satisfy that person that they would not otherwise do, even if, they, even if those things seem harmful to another person. Really what it is, Julie, if we want to get down to it in sp- spiritual or biblical terms, these are, these are works of the flesh when we're not led by the Spirit. Um, this is what manifests. Hmm. It is what manifests. And I realized that as we were discussing this, that there might be some people who have heard about what happened at Willow Creek, but somewhat superficially, right, through the headlines and, and don't really know beneath the surface. So there were more than 10 women that came forward and said that there was sexual misconduct by Bill Hybels. Um, but then it's my understanding, too, that when these women met with the elders, the level of bullying and abuse that they were subjected to uh, was such that I, I know Vonda told me there were elders in, in tears at, at the end of this, of, of how pervasive the abuse was. I don't know how specific you can be, but can you give people an idea of of what actually happened to these women that were abused. Let me give you some examples. It was everything from Von Dyer's situation of being asked to come up to Bill's room and, and talk leadership and a forced kiss, you know, a grab around the waist. In Nancy Ortberg's situation, a hug that lasted too long. In another woman's situation, they're in an elder board meeting and Bill Hybels, you know, has his hand on a woman's leg and mm-hmm. no one else can see, telling another woman, how she looks in a dress and how it accentuates her body, everything up to an alleged affair to uh, Pat Baranowski, his, you know, Bill Hybels, longtime assistant, you know, stating in the New York Times that Bill Hybels made her, you know, obtain pornography and they watched it together. And, you know, he committed sex acts with her. This is the kind of thing that you would expect from someone who's cruel and not in relationship with Jesus. The thing that is so terrifying is that someone who has been a senior pastor at an organization like that is not beyond it. Hmm. Any person that's not walking in the spirit is susceptible to that type of behavior, even a senior pastor. Well, Mitch, one of the things I've never discussed is that we used to attend Willow Creek. In fact, back in the late 80s, early 90s, we went to Willow Creek and we had a wonderful experience. I mean, it was a great time. I came out of Wheaton College as I know a lot of kids do when you're in a a Christian environment and maybe you see some disillusioning things. And I just, it was a really hard spiritual time for me. So I was really struggling with my faith. And 
really, I came back to the Lord at Willow, and He used that church to help me reestablish my relationship with Him and with His church. And I had a, I had a wonderful experience. But the thing that was so shocking to me is that Bill Hybels was the first pastor I had ever seen be so vulnerable from the pulpit. Yeah. That's one of the things that attracted me to it, is that he would he would admit something that he had failed. Like, I remember one Wednesday night at a midweek service, and he got up and he said how that day he had seen somebody who was, you know, he could tell that they were upset and in need, and he just walked right by the person and totally blew them off. And he realized that he had missed an opportunity to share Christ's love with this person, and he didn't even feel worthy to give this message tonight, you know, and he got teared up. And and I'm watching this, you know, as a 20, early 20-something, right? And I'm like, I've never seen a spiritual leader ever, ever have that sort of self-disclosure in front of the church before he preaches, you know? Julie, that's what's so interesting about this story to me. As I, as I got deeper into it, I started to understand that, you know, when you go to the movies mm-hmm. and you see a story, you expect, okay, that guy's the villain. Those are the good guys. And uh, the, the people in this story are complex characters. Literally thousands of people have come to know Jesus under Bill Hybels' teaching, and yet he was morally bankrupt at the same time. And so I, I hope your listeners understand what I mean when I say this. That's how good God is. Hmm that he can use people who are even morally bankrupt to bring people to himself. And um, the thing that is astonishing to me, use the issue of emotional vulnerability, is that, you know, a lot of times our strengths are our weaknesses. And so when, you know, from the pulpit, that might be a strength. Uh, Another area, it might be used to groom someone and use vulnerability as, as a mechanism to draw people into something that is corrupt. If you go back and you look at Bill Hybels' book in retrospect, mm-hmm. I'm amazed at some of the things that are contained in his books that people became okay with. Like, if you go back and you actually read his books line on line, there were some things in there, in those books, where you go for a pastor that should be unacceptable. But he was attenuating his church culture and culture at large to him and his behavior. I, I mean, I can't tell you how many stories I heard, just like the one that you told, of people who said, well, I was at a conference with Bill Hybels and he was awful to me. Hmm. It should be something that he learned from, right? Right. He's a complex character, powerful ministry at some points. Also, major problems. Think about the psychology of someone who could be doing what was alleged by Pat Baranowski to have been done to her. At the same time, he's writing a book and writing articles for Christianity Today about marriage purity. It involves a level of compartmentalization that is truly stunning. How many people on earth can do that? Very few. And that's one of the things that I just come back to is that the word hypocrisy in the Greek, the word, the word that comes from that means actor. And these men are good actors. They have to be. They're incredibly convincing. And a lot of us who, who sat in the congregation and received from them were, you know, duped. And, and we, we bought it. We bought the routine. And it's, it's, it's shocking. But as you say, it's God's grace that despite all that, he's used these men to bless many, despite everything. Yeah. We're all saints who sometimes sin. So mm-hmm. to some extent, we all have a measure of hypocrisy. I mean, it's an accurate criticism of people within the church. However, there should be a bubble level of character in Christ that we return to. Oh, for sure. I, I think that he lost that. Mm-hmm. I think he lost it. 
Yeah, totally agree. Well, let's talk a little bit about the leadership that protected him, because I think that is the question that I keep hearing over and over from folks is, how do we prevent this from happening? How does our elder board navigate things differently with our pastor? And you mentioned to me that there were some stop signs along the way. There were some areas or some some critical times when things could have gone differently, but the elders caved, in essence, to Bill Hybels. And that set the course for some of these more severe things to continue happening and then to even get more and more severe. Yeah, my understanding of the, of the history has come from interviewing witnesses, talking to people who have served in those roles and hearing their stories at Willow. Um, I think there were a few major events. Hybels at one point had a major conflict with a woman who was serving on the elder board uh, who was trying to hold him accountable and essentially used a quote-unquote reconciliation process involving some other big names in evangelicalism to essentially run her off, put her under an NDA. Hmm. And um, I still haven't been able to get her uh, to visit with me. I wasn't throughout the representation. Uh, There's another circumstance that I became aware of where the board had a 360 review done on Hybels and uh, his leadership and some problems they were experiencing with his management style from, you know, bullying, abusive style, and presented him with the information. He essentially tossed it to the side and said, so what? Hmm. No consequences. No consequences. And basically, my understanding is his cavalier attitude was, well, I'll just pick up and I'll open a new church down the street if you don't don't like me the way I am. And wasn't there something with Bill Clinton— coming to the church and speaking. It's my understanding that was a watershed moment too. You know, Bill Hybels and Bill Clinton, you know, developed a friendship over the years. At least I, what I discovered in my research, there was an invitation for Clinton to come and speak at the Global Leadership Summit and a confrontation with the elder board about that because Clinton was on the heels of an adultery scandal. Mm-hmm. And um, my understanding was the elder board set some boundaries for Clinton to be able to come and speak, which Hybels assented to, including you know, being repentant for his behavior and not talking about politics and some other things as well. And uh, Heibel said, essentially, yeah, yeah, we'll we'll do it that way. And Clinton showed up and then uh, didn't <laughs> comply with anything that the board had, had said. So, you know, Julie, it's really, it's death by a thousand cuts. Hmm. And that was how Bill deformed his accountability structure. And I have other thoughts about that and how that all worked out. At, at, at one point, the elder board, at Willow became what people call a policy governance board. Mm-hmm. And when I came into the representation, that, that was a new term to me. I'd never heard anything like it. But essentially, it was the board being asked to deal with matters of policy, and then all matters of implementation really get left to the vocational staff of the church. My personal belief, not speaking on behalf of anyone else, my personal belief is that that structure is designed to fail because elders can't elder in that structure. Hmm. There's a lot of church boards that operate that way. I think that's dangerous. I think it's incredibly dangerous. I understand that the desire to have elders dealing with what I'll call echelon or tier level theological topics. What does the church think about, you know, for example, racial reconciliation, or what does the church think about Calvinism, something along those lines. But What happens when there is a sheep within the flock who needs to be defended? That is not a matter of policy. Hmm. When you have when you have a woman who says, I was, you know, uh, molested by a staff member or you have a staff member who says uh, Bill Hybels just 
threw a punch at me or dog cussed me up and down the hallway. Those aren't matters of policy, Julie. Hmm. So, so who's supposed to hold who's supposed to hold the leaders accountable in that structure? Hmm. It's a rhetorical question. You feel that they have to have more of a governance, more of a hands-on role than a lot of them do. When I came onto our board, it, the terms that Pete Briscoe used were guide, govern, and guard. Hmm. And I think I think policy governance has the govern part. They've got a little bit of the guide part, but you lose the guarding mechanism, which I think. In today's uh, in today's cultural moment, it's mm-hmm. probably the most important aspect of eldering. Uh, something else that you mentioned about the board, which I found fascinating, was that the Willow Creek board had an awful lot of lawyers on it. Now you're a lawyer, so and you're the chairman of your board, so uh, I'm guessing you're not against lawyers being on the board. <laughs> um, I'm against too many lawyers, uh, and I can, yeah. you know, I think I'm in a position to critique this. Mm-hmm. Lawyers are by definition advocates, right? Because we represent their interests. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that Bill Hybels created an advocacy structure around him by having these that many lawyers on the board. Pete Briscoe's father. <laughs> Uh, Stuart Briscoe, who I just love dearly. Um, he's, he's not in good health. I, I wish he were, I wish he could hear this and hmm. I'd wish him well. Um, he said, uh, Pete, you should have one lawyer on your board, but not more than one. And I, I believe that there is some really sound wisdom in that. Um, there's, there's an advocacy piece to lawyering that needs to be there a little bit, but it doesn't need to be pervasive. Senior pastors don't need advocates. They need accountability. Churches sometimes need advocates outside their system. Inside their system, they need to be guarded, governed, guided. Well, and it troubles me, too, that so many of our Christian organizations seem to be more beholden to lawyers' advice and counsel than they do the Word of God. You know, when you have somebody like Brian Loritz, who, when he's talking about why, when he was at a former church, he didn't disclosed to the church that they had a sexual predator among them for six months. He's like, well, I wasn't trying to protect the man who, by chance, was his brother-in-law. I was just following lawyer's advice. So it's okay, because it was lawyer's advice, you know? And it's like, where does the Word of God play into our decision-making, and where does what's, you know, legally expedient for our organization? It's not okay. And so... (laughs) You know, as a lawyer on the board, you're not absolved from the obligation of complying with the mandates of Scripture. So while I have strong feelings about this, as you can imagine, being a lawyer, but mm-hmm. um, at all points, legal advice has to be subservient to Scripture. Amen. Amen. Not elevated above it. You know, I think, Julie, the other thing that was really whacked out about Willow's elder board, and I didn't find this out until very late in the representation, was they operated by design out of unanimity. Okay, so I want you to think about this while, you know, Bill Hybels is is being accused of doing awful things by, you know, a dozen women. If you have six members of the board of eight, let's just say it's eight or ten. Let's say you have you have six or eight members. You're saying, guys, we need to fire this person and we need to apologize and we need to start on the work of reconciliation and repentance now. And you have two or three board members who go, I don't think so. They did nothing because they were required to move by unanimity. Mm-hmm. I, I think one of the things that happens in churches from a from a deformed leadership standpoint is requiring boards to operate in unanimity or using unity as a cudgel 
against people who have firm convictions about things. Mm. Do you understand what I'm saying? I do. And Harvest was the same thing. They Their board operated by unanimity as well. And I think it wasn't a problem, Mitch, because everybody always agreed with whatever the senior pastor wanted. That's a bad default state. Oh, it's, it's a horrible. bad default state. Absolutely horrible. They're not holding anybody accountable then. Basically, they're rubber stamp. Yeah, that's uh, super dangerous. I followed the harvest situation, which I think is its own, it, you know, separate facts, uh, right. but it's an analog. It's a serious analog for what happened at Willow. Yeah, I, I just I'm amazed that they were in such geographic proximity to one another, dealing with almost the exact same problem. It's uncanny. People are asking, it is uncanny. what is it with Chicago? I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. You know, and, I believe in spiritual strongholds and things like that. And uh, yes. I think there was I, but I think that there's a spiritual stronghold around celebrity culture within evangelicalism uh, writ large. Yes, I, I totally agree. And I do think there is a spiritual stronghold. I, I hope and pray that it will be broken in our area. I would love to see Chicago experience revival. Um, but so far, I haven't I haven't seen that. I haven't seen a lot of true owning, true repenting, true confessing. Um, although there's been some, but it's it just has not really looked like true repentance in so many ways. The other thing I, I wanted to talk to you about, and you mentioned this in an earlier discussion we had, about the identity of elders and how so often, and I don't think it's just elders, I think it's a lot of the senior pastor leadership and staff, that their identity tends to become enmeshed with the success or failure of the organization they're a part of. Talk to me about how you saw this playing out at Willow Creek. Nobody who is an elder at a church should have any aspect of their identity wrapped up in either the role of being an elder or in the success or failure of the organization. What I've told people is if if you are not ready to blow yourself or the organization up in five seconds flat, <laughs> uh, you need to find a different hobby. Yeah, This is a calling. It's mm. a calling of God. It's scripturally rooted, serving in the role of elder. It's a huge responsibility. What I saw happen at Willow is the board as a unit was willing to dissemble in the amount necessary to preserve the organization. So if you think of Willow as being a living thing, we are willing to put other things to death on the altar of preserving that organism. That to me is a corruption of the role. Mm. And if you, if you are not willing to, as an organism or as an organization say, we messed up this person or these people were hurt as a result, um, you have a pride problem. Yeah, that's rooted in pride. Hmm. Put a, a sin tag on it or a flesh tag. It's really pride. You you have your identity rooted in something other than Christ, hmm. the centrality of Christ. Hmm. And it's idolatry. It is. Uh, yeah. You've you've created a fiction. When you organize a church, what is a church organization but a, a legal fiction, right? It's hmm. you're you formed a nonprofit corporation. And that's what that's what you end up protecting, right? Mm -hmm. Is that you know, that nonprofit corporation and its bank accounts, that's not what the biblical church is. Amen. Amen. And, and it's so important, I think, for any of us who are doing any kind of ministry at all, if we get our identity wrapped up in what we're doing, 
then what we're doing is no longer ministry. It's no longer service to the Lord. It is simply to feed ourselves. And that's not what this is about. It's about serving God. So the church I, is literally a collection of people. It is not a building. Mm-hmm. It is not a program. It is not a set of services. It is a collection of people. And if you think you think it's not, you know, go and look in your church building right now if you're quarantined under, you know, under COVID or you're not gathering. Hmm. It is a collection of people that we are to care for. Amen. We're talking a little bit about the elder board, okay, how it didn't bring accountability. But there's a sense that the Church of Jesus Christ, universal, is represented all throughout, not just the United States, but the world. And there's an element to which a church like Willow Creek was a global church, right? They had these global leadership uh, summits. They had so many churches, thousands of churches coming on board and and being a part of those. It was a part, just a huge fixture in evangelicalism. And yet, when these issues started being raised about Bill Hybels, the larger church other than, you know, a few people, you mentioned the Ortbergs, for example, they came forward and spoke. John and Nancy Ortberg had been at Willow Creek as, as pastors. They're involved in their own issue right now. But they spoke. But other than that, you know, there just weren't a lot of people in the larger church speaking, and there had to have been a lot of church leaders who knew about what was going on and knew that there were problems with Bill Hybels. Why is it that nobody outside a very small group of women who had no power, really, no position, why didn't others come to their rescue? Why didn't others support them? I think these women would still like to know the answer to that. There was a period of time that I'll call the Great Loneliness after that Chicago Tribune article came out where they were radioactive. Hmm. Pete Briscoe, our pastor at our church, came out in support of the Dyers which was bold and it was brave. Hmm. Here's my belief, Julie. I think the church at large, the, the big leaders in evangelicalism, we can name names if we want to, and I'm sure that people have names on their mind when they're hearing this. Why were they silent? I think that they were scared of what I'll call the Christian industrial complex mm-hmm. that had risen up around Bill. The economic consequences of speaking out on a topic of high consequence. And you you actually referred to it as multi-level marketing, and I think you hit the nail on the head. Explain that. If you go back through Willow Creek's archives, you can see all the, you know, the authors of books uh, who came in and uh, were platformed at Willow Creek. They show up, they sell books. Um, You know, Willow Creek's pastors, uh, family members benefit from the penumbra of Willow Creek, and it's just sheer size within evangelicalism. You know, Heibel's daughter had her own book on Oprah's book club. Can you imagine how many books that sold her? They made a lot of friends. They made a lot of friends, a lot of money over Mm -hmm. the years, selling books, Mm -hmm. uh, promoting programs, Mm -hmm. uh, platforming them at conferences, platforming them at the Global Leadership Summit. Can you imagine what that does for book sales to be on stage at the Global Leadership Summit among people all over the world and touted as an expert in something? Huge. When you think about the economic reach of an organization that was that size within evangelicalism, uh, I, my belief, even Christianity today was scared to run articles about them. Yeah, they eventually did, but you're right, and they were no friends of ours during the, <laughs> the Harvest uh, investigation huh, either. You don't say. <laughs> yeah. You don't say. Uh, I, yeah. I, wonder, I wonder what effect that might have had on them, the fact that, I don't know, James McDonald was friends with Ed Stetzer? Yeah. Uh, friends, of, friends of the publication? Yeah. 
right? I'm still waiting for the apology, for the public apology, for giving. Yeah, I think you're going to be waiting a while. Yeah, I, apparently it's not going to happen, and and which really makes me sad because they've had a change in leadership, and I really was hopeful that there was going to be a public apology, and yet none, none at all. And I can only imagine what the economic forces are behind the scenes for that, but it really disappoints me that that hasn't happened. But let's talk about, since we're talking about the media, Willow Creek had unbelievable resources at its disposal, right? And it had all of these allies, not just in the media, but among the evangelical industrial complex, other megachurch pastors, everything. And yet they lost the PR battle, which is unbelievable. I think that was a move of God, a move of the Holy Spirit. But when we look at it from some practical ways that God used people to, to undo this, Explain what you see as being the key forces. To me, this is one of the beautiful God moves about the entire situation. Uh, we were fighting asymmetric warfare, right? Mm-hmm. Because they, I mean, they had a massive uh, PR machine. They had, you know, Mark, they hired Mark DeMoss's firm to come in and try to, you know, resolve things from a PR standpoint. Uh, we needed to go to the hills and fight as guerrillas. Yeah. And, you know, what is guerrilla warfare? It's designed to be, you know, to be fought asymmetrically and it's designed to be accretive, right? That it, that gains strength over time. It grows over time. Well, early on in the process, after the Tribune article, we had to make a decision. How are we going to fight a machine of this size that is basically promulgating lies about these women and their families and their, and their supporters. Hmm. And, um, I reached out to people that I already knew within, you know, the watch blogging community. Um, you know, people like, D. Parsons, Julianne Smith, Julia Dahl, um, people who I knew would not stop talking about it and would not stop talking about it for months. Mm-hmm. And Willow lost the battle of PR on social media. It was like trying to fit a battleship through a set of French doors. Mm. They didn't have the ability to move quickly. They didn't have the ability to respond to new issues as they arose. It's one of the beauties and the deformities of social media is social media is agile. Yes. And it's pervasive and people are they're using it. And it's and it's not something you can control like traditional mainstream media. And Willow just they got killed because they they wouldn't respond and say the truth. Mm-hmm. These little bitty people from Willow's perspective who helped win the PR battle. It's a miracle. It's biblical. God uses the weak things of this world to confound the strong, right? Yep. And he has. And this is one of the, I think, exciting things. (laughs) You lived it. You lived it. I did live it. Uh, Not so much at Willow till after, because I was so wrapped up in the Harvest stuff at that time and the Moody stuff um, that I didn't really have the capability or the bandwidth to do much uh, reporting about Willow. Uh, so grateful for those who did. And Scott McKnight, who came out with a just a powerful, I remember when his blog hit and he said, every elder has to resign. And within, what is, wasn't it a week? All of them resigned. It was stunning to me. But this is the beauty of, I think what's arisen is an independent media, uh, what I do, you know, and what uh, Ministry Watch is doing and what all these independent bloggers are doing. Um, that it's bringing accountability. And I think there is a healthy fear. I mean, First Timothy 5.20 says that we should publicly expose elders who are sinning so that others may take warning. And so I, I, I do think it's a healthy thing 
uh, when you're afraid of doing wrong because it will be brought up and you will be held accountable. And I think there's a kind of an old guard of megachurch pastors and leaders that think that they're above accountability, and they're beginning to realize they're not. I think you're absolutely right about that. Can I talk about Scott McKnight for a second? Sure. So, Scott, uh, it's like the scene in The Avengers when Iron Man just kind of drops out of the sky. That's what he was. (laughs) Uh, He was like one of these, you know, I think until Scott decided to speak up, it was Willow had credulity to say, these are people outside our tribe who are criticizing us. This is Chicago Tribune. This Mm. is people who are disillusioned who wanted big jobs at Willow and didn't get them. But when Scott, the the, uh, intra-tribal dissenter, steps up and says, this is wrong, things shifted. I I, I don't think that he caused the elder board to resign Uh, I think it's Pat Baranowski's story that ran in the New York Times that actually caused that. But here's what happened when Scott criticized them publicly. I know for a fact that his article was circulated among the staff at Willow Hmm. and they they crossed the Rubicon of credulity. Hmm. It's like now someone inside the tribe has said something is wrong here and it must be dealt with. And uh it took someone of Scott McKnight's gravitas to be able to shift the discussion at Willow. Well, and I hope there are Christian leaders listening to this who take note, because the time of just being silent and thinking that because you're silent, uh, nothing will come back on you, that's past. And I think Christian leaders need to start stepping up. They have a responsibility to the larger church to speak. And so when these things happen, they can't just stay silent. And and sadly, I think they have still. The, the priest who crossed the street, right? Hmm. When the <laughs> when the man's lying on the side of the road naked and bleeding, they're yeah. the priest who crossed the street. Well, I want to turn our discussion to what you've experienced at your own church, which is a multi-site megachurch there in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, because those are things where you've been able to apply some of these lessons that you've learned from watching the negative example, maybe, of Willow Creek. You've learned an awful lot from going through crisis at your own church. One of those is that you had your senior pastor resign kind of suddenly. And you're in the process right now of looking for a senior pastor. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. We have a, we have an open listing for a lead teaching pastor in a what I believe is a healthy church environment. And I've been a critic of megachurch multi-site model, but you have seen the, the worst of it, and yet you're still in a megachurch multi-site church. What makes you stick with that model and believe it can still be used despite how badly that model has been abused? That is a a very fair question. (laughs) Um, I I think ultimately we are still kind of under the inertia of a culture that was fomented by Pete Briscoe, which was a culture of goodness, Hmm. a culture of grace, and it's still carrying forward under that momentum. But it it really the tone has to be set by leadership for a culture of goodness. I don't think that there's anything at a megachurch that inoculates it from being good. And how do you do that? You have to have uh, a strong culture of accountability. You have to have a lead pastor who creates a strong culture of accountability. You have to have unity among your vocational staff at the church about you know, key issues like how do we treat other people? 
How do we deal with claims of sexual abuse? What's our theology? Do we have a theology of goodness at our church? So your pastor, he chose himself to step down, correct? Yes. Okay. But it was after a period of, I I don't know the details, and I don't know how much you're at liberty to say them, but it's my understanding he went away for a period of time to kind of reflect and assess how he was doing and how he was handling things, and he came back and said, I can't do this anymore. I think it took courage. I think it took courage and boldness on his part to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Because I, I often wonder what it would have happened if he had come back and, you know, not been well or not been really able to do his job, but said, you know what, I, I, I've got to do this. This is, you know, um, either I need the job or this ministry completes me or whatever, yeah. whatever the excuse is. But he had the emotional and spiritual fortitude to say, you know what, I can't do this authentically anymore. Mm-hmm. And, um, as hard as the last year and a half has been, I applaud him for that. Mm-hmm. But I guess this is the question so many are asking is, can anybody be in those kind of jobs with the kind of responsibility that is put on one human, one person to lead thousands of people and and so many looking to him for vision, for leadership, for everything? And there's a lot of people asking, is that just too great a burden to ever put on one person. How do you respond to that? I've asked that question many times. Uh, I think, uh, I think the load needs to be shared. People can do the job of preaching and leading a church for, you know, 40 plus weeks in the pulpit at a church of this size. I think they can do it effectively. Think about the people who have done it historically, you know, Mm -hmm. the Chuck Swindolls that, I mean, we can, we can run off a list of names. We can also run off a list of failures I think the larger the platform, the more rigorous the accountability needs to be. And uh, that's why I thought it was so funny that James McDonald had his house in the name of an entity called Vanilla Bean LLC. (laughs) Uh, And I could explain why I think that's funny, but you have to have extreme accountability the larger your platform gets. Well, since you brought it up, you're going to you're going to have to address the Vanilla Bean. Yeah, I just I, I saw you ran a story on McDonald's massive mansion in Illinois being held in the name of Vanilla Bean LLC. And I thought, I think I knew what he was doing when he named it that. But here's why I think it's so ironic. The vanilla bean is incredibly hard to harvest. It grows on the vanilla orchid, and it only grows in really exotic places like Tahiti. Um, There are some places in Mexico it grows too. But what is unique about the vanilla orchid is that when it blooms, it's got to be pollinated within one day. Vanilla orchids are actually pollinated by hand in most places. Mm-hmm. And unless they're pollinated by hand on the one day that the bloom opens, uh, they won't make anything. They won't produce any vanilla beans. Mm-hmm. And so when I looked at that in the context of James McDonald, I'm going, you know what? That's the type of accountability that man needed and was denied. And you have to, there must be assiduous accountability going on in the life of someone who has the big radio show, has the big platform, is platformed at conferences and large organizations, because the temptations are greater. It's the biblical admonition, you know, to hold a knife to your throat, lest you desire the king's delicacies. I, I hear you say that, and I believe in accountability really strongly. At the same time, I know that the original elders of Harvest thought they could keep James accountable, despite the knowledge that he had glaring character flaws from the beginning. And yeah. I remember you saying that's, once... That's a struggle. It, it is. I remember you saying once that uh, you had gotten a manual. I think it was from the ECFA. And boy, we could talk about them, but we, we don't have time <laughs> in this podcast. Yeah. But you had said you had gotten this manual, and it was about 
you know, basically how to be an elder and how to lead. And you made the statement that if you have the character to lead, you don't need a manual. And if you don't have a character to lead, no manual is going to help you. And I feel that way with these pastors. If they have the character to lead, the accountability will help keep them, you know, keep them honest, so to speak. You know, it's kind of like when you put a bike uh, lock on your bike that keeps yeah. that keeps the honest person honest. The thief knows how to how to get through that lock, right? Yeah, but that's it a good keeps. Word. And so I almost feel like the elder boards are there to keep the honest person honest. But if you have a pastor with a glaring character flaw, you're you're fooling yourself if you think you're going to keep that character flaw in line with a pastor who doesn't put Jesus Christ first in his life. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's a good word too, Julie. I mean, you don't need to be trying to fit a round peg into a square hole because <laughs> it is going to manifest itself in bad ways. You're it's just not it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Hmm. Well, one thing I did want to cover and our time is is getting to an end, but I know that you have dealt with uh, having a sexual predator within your church and that that was uh, something that taught you an awful lot about how elder boards should deal with uh, sexual impropriety or sexual abuse within their own walls. And this is a huge problem uh, in the evangelical church, in the Southern Baptist church. I mean, just absolutely massive problem where so often the predator is covered up instead of brought to justice. Tell us what you learned through, you know, bringing this person to light, confronting him and dealing with the entire situation that we can learn from as a church. Yeah, without using any names, I, I just want to say this was not someone who acted on any behavior at our church, but um, had someone who was in the process of grooming someone else, a, a young person or a high school ministry. So you caught them before that anything actually happened. Absolutely. And here's here's what we have to do as people leading churches, okay? You you have to understand what the signs of grooming are. So one of the things that I did that really helped me, my good friend Boz Chavigian put out a book through his organization, Grace. It and uh I'm gonna butcher the title. It's something like child protection policies. If you want to know what grooming looks like in the context of church, every elder at a church of any size should read this book. Hmm. So you can go to Amazon and enter in Boschevigian and his book will pop up. But hmm. you need to know what you're looking for, because people who are sexual predators, um, they have uh, an acuity for blending into society in ways that they don't stand out. Like this is not like, you know, the sexual predator in your church is not some, you know, grace ball sitting outside your kid's ministry, just kind of looking for a way to get in. Like that's our common image of what a sexual predator is. These are people that are in your country club. These mm. are people that may be in the cubicle next to you at work who have an acuity for blending in to normal life. And so when you see behaviors that look like grooming, you know, John Calvin, I'm not a Calvinist and I don't agree with a lot of his views, but he said something that is true. We need to have, you know, the church leader needs to have two voices, one for gathering the sheep and one for scaring away wolves. Hmm. And that needs to be an elder at a church of really any size. You need to say, look, I see what you're doing. This is wrong. And when the person makes excuses or says, you know, this is a misunderstanding, I didn't mean to, you know, message that kid inappropriately online, or I didn't mean to invite them to go do something uh, by ourselves out of, you know, trying to do something bad. I was just trying to build a relationship or whatever. You just go, Look, I see you for what you are, and you're going to have to go. Hmm. 
boy, and if more churches did that, how much pain and uh, heartache among the sheep would have been spared, right? I mean, that is just huge. You're absolutely right. And the thing about predators, Bill Hybels included, okay, Mm -hmm. is they start to do more things in public to condition you to behavior that is inappropriate. And they test their boundaries Mm -hmm. to see what they can get away with. And they're, um, they're born knowing how to do that. Like they didn't read a book figuring out how to do it, but there are warning signs that people need to be aware of. This is a person who is pushing a boundary because they want to do something bad. Hmm. Well, Mitch, this has been rich. Thank you so much. I appreciate you taking time again away from your vacation to spend time with us. So appreciate it. Oh, it's a blessing to me, Julie. Oh, well, and I appreciate your service to the church. Um, I'm so glad that there are godly men like you serving. So thanks again. I appreciate you so much and look forward to visiting with you again soon. Likewise. Well, and thanks so much for listening to The Roy's Report, a podcast dedicated to reporting the truth and restoring the church. I'm Julie Royce, and if you'd like to find me online, just go to julieroyce, spelled R-O-Y-S dot com. Also, make sure you subscribe to The Roy's Report on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. That way you'll never miss an episode. And while you're at it, we'd really appreciate it if you help us spread the word about the podcast by leaving a review. And then please share the podcast on social media so more people can hear about this great content. Again, thanks so much for joining me today. I hope you have a great day and God bless. God bless.